The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 8 and verse 19, the 19th verse in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. Now those who attend here regularly will know that for a number of Sunday nights now, I don't remember how many, eleven or twelve, we've been considering together the passage that contains this 19th verse in this 8th chapter of John's Gospel. We began studying it at verse 12, and it's a passage that goes on to verse 29, speaking roughly. And we've been looking at it in this way. We are confronted by two things here. First, this extraordinary phenomenon, this amazing fact of this man, apparently just an artisan, just a carpenter from Galilee of all places, standing up in the temple at Jerusalem and saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The most stupendous thing that has ever been said in this world. And yet, as we've been seeing so painfully for a number of Sunday nights, instead of all these people listening to him there in the temple at Jerusalem, falling at his feet, and thanking him and asking humbly for further light and knowledge and instruction, they react against him. They begin to question him and to argue with him, display malice and spleen and spite against him and are obviously entirely antagonistic to him. Now, we've been dealing with this for one reason only, that this is beyond any question the supreme tragedy of the human race. It is the supreme tragedy of this world this evening. Let those who are forever talking about the bombs go on doing so, but I assure you that this is the final tragedy that men and women should not recognize their own deliverer, their own messiah, their own savior. This is the tragedy. Why? Well, because as we've been seeing of some of the consequences that follow this rejection, our Lord is at pains to make it plain here. He tells these people plainly, I judge no men, yet if I judge, my judgment is true. You see, this is the tragedy, that God sent his son into the world, that the world through him might be saved. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. We are told that abundantly. There was no need for that. The world is already condemned. God sent his son into the world that the world might be saved. And yet here is this world that needs salvation, rejecting him and thereby turning him who was sent to be the savior into the final cause of their own judgment and their own condemnation. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light 
because their deeds were evil. Now I say that as you look at it objectively, as you see it in these verses, there is something which is almost incredible about it. That men and women could conceivably react in this way and in this manner to such a person and to such a statement. And yet they did. And we've been working through the various reasons and causes of that rejection as they are revealed in the passage. Now we come this evening to our last consideration of it. And in a sense, it is all summed up by what we find in this particular verse. This is ultimately the cause of all the other causes which it includes. What is it? What was it, in other words, let me put it like this, what was it that so antagonized and infuriated these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and doctors of the law against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Have you ever faced that question? Read your Gospels. And you'll be astounded at the amount of space which is taken up in reporting mere wranglings and arguments and disputations. These Pharisees and scribes, what was the matter with them? Why did they oppose him? Why did they question him? Why did they try to catch him? Why did they finally plot together and encompass his death upon the cross? What was really the cause of this disturbance? What was the thing of all other things that really annoyed them? And as I say, infuriated them. Well, it's because we have the answer to that particular question in this one verse that I'm calling it, calling your attention to it this evening as we sum up as it were the teaching of this entire paragraph. What was it? Well, it was this. It was the uniqueness, the exclusiveness of his claim. Now, whatever you may say about these Pharisees and scribes, you've got to grant that they were very intelligent people. These people not only listened to what he said, they invariably caught the implication. And it was that that annoyed them. They saw what he was suggesting in all that he was teaching, and it was that suggestion, I say, that finally riled them and annoyed them and infuriated them. What was the suggestion? Ah, the suggestion was this. That salvation was entirely and altogether in him. And that there was no salvation apart from him. That was the rock of offense. That was the cause which led them finally to crucify him. He puts it here very plainly, you see, in this verse. He puts it like this. They say to him, you're talking about your father. Where is your father? This father that you're talking about. Where is he? And he answered and said to them, you neither know me nor my father. And then here's the phrase. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. Here's the claim. To know him is to know the Father. Conversely, not to know him is not to know the Father. You don't know my Father, he says. Now remember that he was talking to very religious people. He's not talking here to people who are pagans, those who are outside the commonwealth of Israel. He's not talking here to some common rabble. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to highly moral people. He's talking, in a sense, to the best people in the land. And that is what he says to them. He says, you don't know my father. And you don't know my father because you don't know me. Now, here's the rock of offense, I say. All along he makes this exclusive claim. 
and they got it, they saw the implication. And that is the ultimate explanation of all their attitude towards him, all they did and said, and all that they failed to do. Now then, it is this that I want to consider with you this evening. Our Lord here surely deals with the two most important propositions that a company of people can ever consider. I'm going to put before you tonight the two most important things in life. The two most urgent and vital questions that can ever confront us. You know, it's one thing to sing together. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. But you really feel like that? Did we really mean it? Is that what we really think of him? Is that a true expression of the deepest recesses of our hearts and our beings? It should be. It was a true expression in the case of the men who wrote it. It should be of all of us. And really to see him and to know him leads to such an expression. There's nothing else that's adequate. What is one tongue when you really know him? Oh, for a thousand tongues. The whole universe is not enough. But the question is, do we really feel that or are we like these people? It's one or the other in a sense. Well, now then, let us look at these two questions that he puts before us. The first uh, statement is that the supreme thing and the most important thing in this life and in this world of time is to know God. Ye know neither me, he says, nor my father. If he had known me, what would have happened? Well, you should have known my father also. And there's nothing beyond that. This is the supreme thing. To that extent, you see, Philip was right, the disciple. He was wrong in its actual form, but he was right in the fundamental desire that was in his mind and heart when he said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. That's what we once said, Philip, you say you are going all right. Show us the Father. If you've shown us the Father, well, that's the summum bonum. There's nothing beyond that. And that's right. And our Lord really says that here. That's the supreme thing in life is to know God. Now, we must be a little bit careful about this, this word, no. It's a very important and a very significant word, this. It's not a word that must be taken at its surface or face value. Listen to him again. They said, where is thy father? Jesus answered, you, and remember, he's talking to these religious experts. He said, you know, you neither know me nor my father. Now, you see the significance. He said, you don't know me. It was obvious that they knew about him, wasn't it? Because he was there standing before them. And they'd heard him before in the temple and in other places. They'd heard the stories about him. Everybody knew about Jesus of Nazareth. He was creating a great stir. Indeed, a great commercial. Everybody was talking about the marvelous things that he was doing. They knew a great deal about him. And there he was standing before them. So that, in a sense, they could say, well, we know you. You are Jesus of Nazareth. But he says, you don't know me. Well, now then, the same term is used, you notice, with regard to God, the Father. Ye neither know me nor my Father. So that the knowledge that he's talking about with respect to God is the same kind of knowledge. 
He's not talking about knowing things about God. Everybody's got that in a sense. Most people have heard of God and have heard uh, what the Bible says about God in a very general way. People glibly say, oh, I've always believed in God. Of course I believe in God. I don't claim to be a perfect saint, but I've always believed in God. Of course I believe I know about God. Well, that's not what he's talking about. He says, you don't know the Father. This word know, as it's used in the Bible, is a word that carries the sense of a certain intimacy. It conveys the whole notion of fellowship, of a trafficking taking place. A personal, living, communicative knowledge. That's what he's saying. You see, it's true, he says, of their relationship. You don't really know me. You don't know the truth about me. There's no accord between us. Nothing's happening between us. They didn't know him in that sense. And he says the same is true concerning their knowledge of God. Well, now then, my friends, that it is in that sense that I'm using the term when I lay down my first proposition, that the most important thing in life is to know God. And therefore, I don't apologize for asking you this question before we proceed any further. Do you know God? Maintain the difference in your thinking, not knowing things about him, not saying things concerning him. Do you really know him? Is he real to you? Is there fellowship? Is there communion, communication? That's to know God. And here is our Lord addressing Pharisees with the religious teachers who spent their time in telling people about God, expounding their Old Testament scriptures, dealing with these glosses on the law, explaining all about God. He says, you don't know God. And you know, my dear friends, the whole business and purpose of Christianity is to bring men and women to a knowledge of God. You will find later on in this same gospel, in the 17th chapter, in the third verse, our Lord himself says this, this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He keeps on saying it, you see, in different ways. What he's saying here is exactly the same thing as in chapter 17, verse 3. It's in many, many other places. This knowledge, this, I say, is the one thing that matters, the one thing about which we should be certain. Why did the Son of God come into this world? The answer, according to the Apostle Peter, is to bring us to God. That's it. Well, now then, someone may ask the question. Why, why should I be concerned about this knowledge? Why do you say that the most important thing in this world is to know God? Well, let me suggest some answers to you. This first one, you know, is enough in and of itself. I'll tell you why you should seek to know God. Because God is God. Because he is what he is. That appeals to every one of us, doesn't it? Everybody's anxious to know important people. You say, can't, I get, can't you get me an introduction to him or to her? Prominent person, great person. How can I get into Buckingham Palace? How can I have an audience of the Queen? The greater the person, the greater the desire and the anxiety to get to know that person. You read about them in the papers, you hear about them, gossip, conversation. Ah, but you say, oh, I'd like to get to know that person. And you're all right, I agree entirely. 
We're all hero worshippers by nature and we want to know the great and the noble and the wonderful. Very well, my friend, take your own principle. Multiply it by infinity. And that is the desire to know God. God. The Lord of heaven and earth. Glorious in majesty. Everlasting in his might. And in his infinite perfection. We can't describe it. No man has seen God at any time. We have but some dim vague knowledge. He's been pleased to reveal it to us. But we know that the essential thing in God is his glory. Which is indescribable. He dwelleth in a light which is unapproachable. Which no man hath ever seen or can see. The infinite, the glorious, the almighty, the omnipotent, the omniscient, the everlasting God. That's enough, I say, in and of itself, but let me give you some further reasons to encourage us all in this great quest. The greatest quest in life, the quest for God, the search for God. Think of another thing you should desire this knowledge because God is our maker and our creator. He made us and not we ourselves. Are you foolish enough to believe that man has evolved out of some primitive slime? Are you mad enough to be deluded by the shibboleth of this present century? Starting a hundred years ago with Charles Darwin, that all these wonderful flowers and everything else are the mere result of accident and chance, something fortuitous? Are you mad enough to believe such a thing? Consider the human frame. Consider the extraordinary instruments that we possess. I've often put it like this, I believe, even from this pulpit before. You know, the human eye alone is enough to make me believe in God. No man could ever invent an instrument like the human eye with its subtlety and its balance and its delicacy and its refinement. Is this something that's developed haphazardly, accidentally, as the result of a stimulus here or a threat there? The thing is inconceivable. Oh, I don't want to detain you with this. But of course, it was just sheer common sense and wisdom that drove a man like the late Sir James Jeans to say that his actual scientific investigations had compelled him and had driven him to believe in a supreme mind behind the universe, a great creator, of course. Look round and about you. Look at the sun in the heavens, count the stars at night. Look at your brooks and streams, your oceans, your mountains, your valleys. Is all this accident, I say, it's inconceivable. It's gone. God, the maker and the creator of everything that is. Oh, here's a reason for seeking to know God. Why, but it, let me put it like this to you. You see, it is only as we look at it like that that we understand the world in which we are living. It's only as we look at God and realize that he is the maker and the creator that we understand ourselves and we understand man. Come, let's be contemporary. Let's be relevant, as they like to say. What is the great trouble in the world tonight? Well, it's this misunderstanding, this quarreling, this desire to have what doesn't belong to you. And the whole world is quaking and sh what's the cause of it all? Why does man behave like as he is and as he does? How do you explain human nature as it is in this world this evening? 
How do you explain the conflicts and the crises and the agonies and the disappointments and the contradictions? I suggest to you there's only one answer, and it is this. It is not that man is slowly evolving and groping his way towards perfection. It isn't. It's this. That man was made in the image of God and made upright. And that there is essential nobility in him, but he is full and he's a mass of contradictions. There is this memory of what he once was. There is this which he is at the moment. And there's a conflict. Man is a mass of contradictions. He can be so noble, he can be so vile. He's great, he's small. He's above the beasts, yes, and he behaves worse than the beasts. Now, you don't understand all that, except you understand it all in the light of God as our maker and creator. And man has made in the image of God. Man's restless. Why? Well, he's got the memory of a lost perfection. He doesn't know it, but it's there, and it disturbs him. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. It was the grand discovery that Augustine made. It's the thing that should be staring all men and women in the face. It is, therefore I say, a reason for seeking the knowledge of God that we may understand ourselves and our contradictoriness and the whole trouble in the world and in society this evening. But come, let me hurry on. Here's another reason for you. Why should I trouble to know God, says someone? Well, I'll tell you, my friend. I'm coming down the scale, you see. Are you unhappy? Why are you in this building at all tonight? Why do you bother about this? I'll tell you why. It is because you are face to face with yourself and the problem of life. And you're looking and seeking for something which you haven't got. Everybody is looking and seeking for blessings, peace, rest, joy, happiness. It's the universal quest. Some seek it in pleasure, others seek it in drink. Men seek it in all shapes and forms, but they're all seeking for the same thing. To get away from self and the problem, to find peace, rest, tranquility. The whole world is seeking for this, but it can't find it. You want a reason for seeking to know God? Here it is. He is the source and the fount of every blessing. He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. He is the father of lights from whom cometh all these things. Here's a reason for seeking God. The father of mercies. The giver of every good and every perfect gift. He has them all in his hands. He is able to dispense them to all who truly seek them. We must hurry on. This matter is endless. I'm simply giving you some headings. Here's another reason. Why should I trouble to seek to know God? Well, if you've got no other reason, think of this one. Because, my dear friend, your life and your times are in his hands. It's no use objecting to that, you know. It makes no difference at all. All our advances leave this great fact of the insecurity of life, the uncertainty, the frailty of life, standing out more clearly than anything else. Doesn't matter how able you are, how clever you are, doesn't matter how knowledgeable you've got to go. And you know you don't control the going. Our times are in his hands. 
We are all in the hands of God. And that's a very good reason for seeking to know God. He put you here, he'll take you out. He started the whole process of time, he's going to end it. Everything is in the hands of God. Go do what you will, you can't evade him and can't avoid him. Read your 139th Psalm. Try and get away from him if you can. Go to heaven, go to hell. Go east, west, north, south, you can't escape him. He's everywhere. The hound of heaven. You're in his hands. Your times are in his hands. Isn't it amazing that a world that is so concerned about security is not seeking God above everything else? We want security, we say. Let's make international treaties. Let's bend the bomb. Let's outlaw war. We want security. Ensure this. Give us a guarantee. Security. Do you want security for time and for eternity? Seek the knowledge of God. It is only to be found there because he is the governor of the whole universe and everything is in his hands. And that leads me to my last reason, which is this. Why should I seek the knowledge of God? Well, because God is the judge eternal. This is God's world. It isn't ours. And he made it according to certain laws and principles. He has taken the trouble to reveal to us how he wants us to live and how he expects us to live. They're all there in the Ten Commandments and in the Moral Law and in the teaching of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere. It's all right. You say, I'm, I'm not interested in that. I've never read my Bible. All right, my friend, you break a law of England and be arraigned in the law court and say, I wasn't aware of this. Well, you'll be told ignorance of the law is no excuse and no defense. You should have known it. And whether you know it or not, it is a fact that is the law, and therefore you bear your punishment. And God is the judge eternal. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Asked Abram of old, and they've all been asking the same question. Oh, you see, man is not just a finite being in the sense that he's only mortal, no, no, dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Of course it wasn't. There is that in men which goes on. Don't believe what you've been reading this last week, that when a man dies, that's the end. It isn't the end. Man doesn't die like an animal. It isn't like a flower dying. No, no, that's not the end. They may not acknowledge God, but they stand before him and they'll have to face him and they'll have to give an answer for what they've done in this life and in this world. God is our judge eternal. Life's not mad. Do we sweat and struggle and strive in this world only to end? At that it's inconceivable. Can you imagine yourself as non-existent? Can you imagine yourself as just ending when you cease to breathe in this mortal body? No, no, you shuffle off this mortal coil and you go on and you go on to meet God. As that author of the epistle to the Hebrews from whom we were reading just now puts it, it is appointed unto all men once to die and after death. The judgment. And there is a practical reason for seeking the knowledge of God. You'll have to meet him. You'll have to stand before him and give an account of what you've done with your soul and what you've made of the gift of life that he gave you in his love.
Oh, here are reasons for seeking to know God. Well, now our Lord, you see, is dealing with that. He says, you know neither me nor my Father. If he had known me, he should have known my Father also. That's the question. Do you know the Father? My dear friend, I ask you the question this evening. Do you know God? Is God real to you? Is God just a term that you argue about? Oh, you said, of course, I was fancy speaking of God like that. Have you ever known the fear of the Lord? The wise man says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not a craven fear. It's reverence and godly fear. To know something of the glory, the illimitable character and the majesty and the holiness and to know God in these senses. Do you know God like that? Is the fact of God the greatest fact in your life and in your consciousness? Is your life governed by a knowledge of God? Do you know him as your father? Do you know anything about his love? Do you know anything about his mercies, his graces, his compassion? Are you able to say with the, with the psalmist, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Can you say with another psalmist, Who am I in heaven but thee, and there is none on earth that I desire beside thee? Do you feel like that? Is God to you infinitely more than everybody and everything else? Is your life, I ask, dominated by the fact of God, your knowledge of him, your relationship to him? Are you on speaking terms with him? Is he the great thou, the eternal thou over and against you? Is there any fellowship between you and God? Do we know God, my friends? But let me hasten to the second matter, which is this. Our Lord not only says that the most important thing in this life and in this world is this knowledge of God, he says in the second place, that he is the only way to that knowledge. Now, here I say, is the rock of offense. You know neither me nor my father. If he had known me, he should have known my father also. You know me, he says, you know him. But if you don't know me, you don't know him. Now, here I say, is something about which we must be absolutely certain. Let me put it as plainly and as clearly as I can. The matter, my dear friend, is so urgent for your immortal soul, we can't afford to trifle with it, especially in view of the things that are being said in the name of Christianity. Have you read in your papers of what was said by a clergyman in an epilogue on Wednesday night, I believe? This is what he said. That though a man doesn't believe in God and in Christ, if he loves the poor, he's all right. Is that your idea of Christianity? That though a man be buried as a dog, that because he is agitated for rights of the poor, I'm not concerned about the political matter. I'm concerned about the statement of the Church of England clergyman who said such a man is a Christian, though he says no and denies the faith. We can't afford to trifle with these matters. Here is the Son of God speaking. And he says that he alone is the way to know God. That to be religious isn't enough. 
That to live a moral and a good life is not enough. That to do good is not enough. That to love the poor is not enough. And to give all your goods to feed the poor. As the Apostle Paul says, if I have not love with it, and this love of God and Christ, it's nothing. You can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You can have the most glowing obituary notices in the Times and every other paper when you die. But I say this, that there is only one way for a man to know God. And it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Know me, you know God. If you don't know me, you don't know God. I'm not here to apologize, I'm here to assert. Christianity is exclusive. It is absolute. It is our Lord's own claim. And he doesn't modify it in any sense whatsoever. That is why I say these Pharisees were so annoyed with him. He was virtually saying that all their religion was useless. They're fasting twice in the week and giving a tenth of the goods to the poor. They might as well not have done it. It availed them nothing. Nothing, he says, is of any value. I and I alone. I am the light of the world. We began with it. Here it is again. If he had known me, he should have known my father also. And if you don't know me, you don't know him and you never will know him. It all comes to him. He stands before us with an absolute claim, with an exclusive claim. There is no way to God and to a knowledge of God except in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I know that when I say that, I'm saying something that is highly objectionable to me at the present, to everybody at the present time. I often get good and kind friends coming in to see me at the close of a service and I meet the same thing elsewhere. And they say, why, why are you so exclusive about this Christianity of yours? They say, you know, I'm interested in what you say, but you always offend me when you make this exclusive claim of yours. They say, I've been reading about other religions. I'm interested in Hinduism. I'm interested in Buddhism. There's quite a revival of Buddhism today in India and other lands. It's been made the official religion of certain countries quite recently. I'm interested in Confucianism. You seem to be intolerant, they say. You seem to be narrow. You're cramped in your outlook. You say it's only this. Now look here, they say. I, I, there are things in your Christianity that I admire tremendously. I'm a great admirer of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm a great admirer of his teaching. But I can't believe that it's the only one. Why do you exclude the others? Why not say that they have their insights? So has Christianity. Let, why not say that, yes, it's got a great contribution to make, but you don't do that, they say. You stand there and you say it is Christ and Christ alone. There is none other. You say no to everything. You say it is this and this only. Why do you do that? Why are you so narrow? Why are you so exclusive? Now that is the objection. It was the objection of the Pharisees and scribes. He was exclusive. He was absolute. He says, I, and I alone am the light of the world, and there is no other knowledge of God apart from me. Now then, how do I answer this objection? Why do I go on asserting and repeating that it is only and exclusively in him? Well, let me give you some reasons. I haven't the time to give you them all. I'll just give you some. Why must this claim of his be true? I'll tell you. Here's one and sufficient reason. Because he is who he is. Because he's son of God. Who are these others? They were only men. They never claimed to be anything more than men. Confucius, Mohammed, Buddha, any one of them you like, and all your great philosophers who were put into the same category, 
Great men, I admit they were great men. But they're only men, my dear friend. Men and women like you and myself. Greater than us, but only like us after all. Of like passions with us. But here is one who says, Ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. This is why I say it's unique. Do you imagine that the Son of God would ever have left the courts of heaven and of glory and have come into this sinful world of time? Unless it were absolutely necessary that he should do so. Was it a small matter for him to divest himself of the insignia of his everlasting glory? And to humble himself? And to appear in the form of a man? And to be born of the Virgin Mary? Is it a small thing that the one through whom all things were made and without whom was nothing made that is made should be laid as a helpless babe in a manger? Is that nothing? Can't you see it? Here's the argument. It seems to me to be inevitable logic. If that has happened to the Son of God, there must have been some overriding reason for it to take place. It must have been the case, I say, that nothing else could save us. Men and teachings, we'd have them. Did you notice that first verse of that great epistle to the Hebrews? God who in sundry time, in, in, diver, in sundry times and diverse manners, in times past, spake to our fathers by the prophets. He did. God has spoken like that. God does give gifts to men and he gives understanding and knowledge and revelation. And he done through, through those great prophets. But says this man, you don't go back to that. Why? Well, the son, he's spoken to us now in his son. You see the argument? If the teachings of men were sufficient to bring us to this knowledge of God, would the Son of God ever have left heaven and come on earth and humbled himself and taken upon him the form of a servant? I say the thing is inconceivable. It doesn't make sense. It's not logic. But wait a minute. Look at this. If it were possible that men could come to a knowledge of God apart from him, and especially, I now say, apart from what happened to him. Do you think that these things would ever have happened to him? If Christianity is only a little contribution with a number of others, and we have our Congress of World Faiths, and you have this insight and that, and this is very good, yes, but so are the others. If this, I say, is not absolutely unique, will answer me this question. Why did the Son of God have to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself? Answer me this question. What's happening to him there in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why is he in that agony? Why is he dropping those great drops of, sweating those great drops of blood? What's the matter? What's the agony? What's the struggle? What's the matter, I say? Why is the Son of God enduring this? and passing through such agony, unless it's absolutely essential. Look at him on the cross, crying out, I thirst. Crying out in that terrible moment, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Feeling that awful blackness and darkness, that forsakenness, what is this? I argue like this, that God would never have allowed his son to endure all that, unless it were absolutely essential. 
It is inconceivable otherwise. Would God allow this suffering merely as a show, merely as a picture, merely as a tableau? I say it is inconceivable in God who is holy and who is love. No, no. The fact that he is who he is and that what happened to him did happen to him. The incarnation and all that it involved and especially the suffering and the agony and the death upon the cross and the burial in the grave, all this I say, happened because it was the only way whereby men could come to know God. Well, let me put that in another way before I close. I say that the very fact that he is who he is and that what happened to him did happen to him is an answer in and of itself to the objections to his exclusive and absolute claim. But here's the other. This claim is true because of what he alone can do for us and has done for us. What's our need? This is the way you'll see why his claim is right. What is it a man really needs? What are the needs of human nature and of humankind this evening? Well, here's the first thing. We need to have this perfect knowledge of God. Yes, the prophets gave it in parts and portions, bits and pieces. It was all right, but it wasn't all. It was all right as far as it went. Still less all these others that are mentioned so much, but even God's own prophets, they could only give it in parts and portions, bits and pieces. But here is the very brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Here is one who could stand and say, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. There is no true and vital knowledge of God in his holiness and in his love and in all his other glorious attributes except you see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. As philosophers can speculate, I'm not concerned to derogate from their greatness and their ability, but my dear friend, what I'm saying is this. You know, they're only trying, they're only trying, they're delving. The world by wisdom knew not God, says Paul. Of course they didn't. How can they? God is infinite and they're finite. They're only speculating and they don't know. God is! And man's mind is too small, it shrivels to nothingness as it tries to encompass that knowledge. God, in all his glory, his holiness, and his love. But in Jesus Christ, you see it all. He is the brightness of his glory and the effulgence, the fullness of it all. In him dwelleth all the goodness of the body bodily. It pleased God that in him should all fullness dwell. God hath treasured up in him all the riches of his knowledge and his grace. It's all there in this one blessed person. And if you want to know God, look at him. It's all there. He is the Son, the brightness of the Father's glory. Men can't give us this knowledge. He gives it us all. It's all in him. There is nothing more to be known. It's all there because he is who he is. But listen, we not only need this perfect knowledge of God because that, of course, has but one effect upon us. It condemns us, doesn't it? You know, you don't feel very happy when you really have a glimpse of God. If the people who talk glibly about God and say, I think this and I think that and God shouldn't do that. If you only had one glimpse of God, with Job you'd not only put your hand on your mouth, you'd growl in the dust. And you'd be amazed and alarmed 
Oh, to have any knowledge of God is to be utterly condemned, to see your sinfulness, your vileness, your wretchedness, your utter hopelessness. So the moment a man sees that, what is he, what's his second need? It's this, to be reconciled to this God. Sin comes between us and him. Sin separates from him. He can't have dealings with us while we're in a state of sin. So man's second great need is to have his sin removed. And how can I get rid of my sin? Can Confucius help me? Can Muhammad help me? Sinner as he was himself, glorying in immorality. And yet I find people arguing for Muhammad and Mohammedanism today and putting it up against, why must you exclude it, they say. I'll tell you that, that's why I exclude it. It's not only immoral in much of its teaching, but Muhammad cannot help me to get rid of my sin. He couldn't deal with his own. And likewise with your Buddha, whose only hope for us is that we go on coming back into this life in an endless series of incarnations, hoping that, hoping that we'll gradually get rid of this bit and that and at last be dissolved in some utter absolute in nirvana. How utterly hopeless all these religions are and must be. Why? Because they can't help me to get rid of my sin. None of them can help me. Teaching doesn't help me. What's the use of telling me to live a better life? My past is there. I've got to get rid of that and I can't and nobody else can and nobody can help me. I'll go further. Did you notice what that author of the epistle to the Hebrews says with very great daring, but it isn't daring, it's revelation and of course it's simple truth. He said, look at those old priests under the old dispensation. Look at that high priest. Some of you, he says, are wanting to go back to that. Fools! Look at them. They were born. They officiated for a while. They died. There was a constant change in the priesthood. Even in the high priesthood. Why? Well, they were only men. And they were very imperfect men. They first had to bring in offerings for themselves and their own sins. Then for the sins of the people. What did they bring? Well, they killed bulls and corrected the blood and they presented it. And goats... And they took the ashes of an heifer and they sprinkled what? This was their method. And you know what he says? It sounds daring, but you know it's the simple truth. The blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer cannot purge the soul from dead works. Even God's own ordinance is not enough. God ordained those priests and that high priest. God commanded them to kill the bull and to take the blood. God told them to take the calf and the goat and all the rest of it. It was God's enactment. I say, but that isn't enough. Not the blood of bulls and goats. Not the ashes of an heifer. That's never enough. Well, why did God command it? Oh, I'll tell you. It was simply to prepare the people for the coming of his own son. These were but the types and the shadows indicating the great antitype and the everlasting substance that has come in Jesus Christ. No, no, not the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer can cleanse the conscience and purify us and enable us to stand in the presence of God without fear. There's only one way. It is in this person who said, I am the light of the world. To know me is to know God. He and he alone can do this. What does he do? He takes our sins upon himself. He had no need to make an offering for himself, for he'd never sinned. He was harmless, undefiled, separate and without sin. He was God the Son in all his glory and perfection. Incognito, shielded as it were and hidden in a veil of flesh, but man and God in one. And he's able, because he's sinless, to take your sins and mine upon himself and to bear the full blast of the wrath of God and God's holy law upon himself. 
He bore my guilt. He bore my sins. They were punished in him. They were done away with. Carried away forever. Into the sea of God's forgetfulness. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Why? Well, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, what he did was this. He took my sins and he imputed them to him. And he dealt with them there. And he imputes his righteousness to me. So I'm reconciled to God and I can go into his presence. He alone could do that. And he alone has done that. And he needs no assistance from Confucius, nor Mahomet, nor Gandhi, nor any one of the prophets of the modern age. No, no, he's done it all, and he alone could do it. He needs no second helper. What else do I need? I need life. God is holy and pure and infinite and absolute, and I'm not only finite, I'm sinful, and I'm unworthy. Who shall dwell with that burning light? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, and I haven't got them. And I can't make my hands clean, I can't cleanse my heart. I know of no medicament, no potion that can enable me to do it. And yet without such purity, how can a man enter into his presence? I want to enter into the holiest of all and have communion with God whom I've come to know. I need new life before I can do that. I need a new nature. And all your great teachers can't give me that. Not a single one of them. None of your Old Testament patriarchs and prophets and saints could give me that. No religious genius that the world has ever known could give me that. There is only one who can give me new life, new birth. Make me a partaker of the divine nature. It is the Son of God who is also Son of Man. He gives me of his own nature. He imparts it to me. He gives me life anew. In him I am born again. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Oh, I say, again with the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, time fails me. What shall I more say? If I had the strength and the ability and you had the patience, I could keep you here to midnight in telling you about this glorious person. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. What is he? He's everything. My prophet, my priest, my king, my lord, my beginning, my end, the alpha, the omega, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He is the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. What shall I more say? He reveals God to me. He reconciles me to God. He enables me to hold converse with God by giving me life. He does everything else I need. He supplies my every need. Gives me strength and power. Puts the very spirit that was in himself into me. And then when I fall into sin and feel I've lost it all, and that I can't approach God, and feel that I need someone in God's presence to plead for me, he's there. This high priest that ever liveth to make intercession. Ah, I can't rely on those other priests. They get old, they become weary and faint. They die and they've gone and something new comes. I never know who's going to be there and whether there'll be anybody there. But this man, because he liveth ever, hath an eternal priesthood. 
I know that a day can never dawn when in my need and anxiety I go to God and feel small and shriveled and lost. I know that a day can never dawn but that he will always be there. And you know he's such a high priest that he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities because having come into this world as a man he's been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are of the dust. He's able to sympathize with all my frailty and all my ignorance. Everything I need is in him. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercies who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befalls me. Jesus doeth all things well. He came from heaven to earth and died for me. And having done that for me, there's nothing he won't do for me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. He's told me so. Therefore I care not what men may say unto me. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. My Savior in life my Savior in death. He'll not only lead me to the river and leave me there. He'll go through with me. He's been through. He's gone before me. There is no experience that I can ever meet but that he's met it before me. He knows all about it. He knows my frame. He understands me. He's been here. He's qualified. It became him, says this author again of the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 2, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, he is therefore a sympathetic high priest. You'll never go to him in vain. He knows all about you. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He's been in this world. He's mixed with men and women. He's seen its sin staring him in the face. He's known the treachery of friend and foe. There's nothing that you can ever endure but that he's endured. You, again, says our author, have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, but he did. And there he is, he's with you, and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He and he alone can give you this knowledge of God. He alone can bring you into the presence of God and enable you to know God as your father. It is only as I look at him, I know that God loves me. I know that God has loved me with such a love that he's given his only son for me. There is no answer to the argument of the cross. It is enough. I know God as he is in Jesus Christ, and I know him there alone. Yes, but he's not only with me in the river, he'll be with me beyond it. And when that great and glorious morning shall dawn, he, the same one, will take me by my hand, and as Jude puts it, will present me faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. Man can't do that. I not only need him in this world, I shall need him there. When I stand before God. Ah, yes, but I have nothing to fear, I shall not be left alone. Now, says Jude unto him who is able to keep us from falling, while we are here, and to present us faultless 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power forever and ever. Of course, he alone can do it. He alone has done it. If he had known me, he should have known my father also. Come to him. Why look at anybody else? Why waste your time? Why jeopardize your soul and its eternal destiny? Jesus is the only Savior. He is an all-sufficient Savior. Fly unto him, and in him come to know God as your Father. Do you know him? To know him is to know the Father. Amen.